This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Hilka for another wonderful edition of the Andean Hour. We've got a great show for you today. We're broadcasting in Studio 2. It's a little bit more intimate here. And we've got a couple wonderful guests, Chris Kelly and Rania Zayat of Vintel Wine. They are sommeliers here in Austin, Texas, and they have a really interesting uh, cycle of classes coming up. And uh, we're going to be talking about a whole slew of topics in the world of wine. Rosés. Rosés are hitting uh, the Austin area hard right now from the 2017 vintage. We're also going to be talking about uh, transparency in wine, all of the the funky things that that, uh, wineries do to maybe uh, obscure the truth. So it's going to be a great show, and uh, stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Rania and Chris. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you to Co-op Radio. Always a lot going on at the station. Um, you know, we, we talk wine in the wine industry, and today, live in Studio 2, is Chris Kelly and Rania Zayat. Hello. Uh, hello, guys. Hey. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, we've got a lot to talk about this hour. Um, you guys have a, a rosé class uh, coming up tomorrow at Lenoir, and rosé is a, a big topic that, uh, that uh, Austinites are kind of in love with right now. Can, can we start off talking rosé, and then we'll talk about some of the other uh, classes that you do and topics that you're really interested in. What, uh, let's kick it off. What, is the basic, what are the basics of rosé? Well, um, rosé is really the oldest style of wine in the world, um, dating back uh, several thousand years. But, uh, you know, right now it seems to be the the hot wine that's trending, that everyone wants to drink, that everyone wants to um, even manipulate and and produce in these sort of summer-like beverages, like frosé we see a lot in Austin, for instance. Um, But really uh, bringing, bringing... classics back to the table and, and talking about regions that have really been making rosé for for much longer um, and intentionally making it and what that really means. Was uh, there a reason it. that rosé was the the kind of old school way of, of making wine? I mean, you were saying it's the, the original style, right? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, um, we saw a lot of uh, field blends, a lot of co-fermenting um, before uh, red and white grapes were separated. They were often planted in the same vineyard and then co-fermented together. Uh, also, people were diluting wine um, several hundred years ago, and uh, it was considered fashionable, uh, fashionable and, and also treacherous to, to drink uh, wine in its pure form. <laughs> um, so even diluting it with water is considered uh, a rosé, and we hear a lot about clarets and lots yeah. of different styles. Right. So, so drinking, um, yeah, well, do you want to take, take, take that, uh, that, that line of thought? Because Chris just, uh, um, turned and, and said, thank you to the English, right? Sure. What, 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 what is that historical, where did things change and, and, uh, and what was the trend, you know, during the, 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 you know, the conquistadores and all of that, that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, R- Rosé 
turned a corner in that period where um, you know a little bit more traction in technology occurred. Um, that style was was popularized, but it was still uh, diluted. And Colorette was something that Rania mentioned, which was right. uh, this you know classic sort of Bordelais style that the English caught onto. And there's a whole history about how Bordeaux ended up where it is uh, historically, and uh, the English had a lot. Of, of influence on that that style so that's something we see a lot of is is influence and you know different uh, different uh, countries that where their markets have been driven definitely have a huge influence right on and, and that was overall style I, I'm very interested in the fact that when you uh, trace the the shipping routes and also the marriages that were happening I mean one of the reasons that Bordeaux was so uh, popular was that Eleanor of Aquitaine married uh, the king of, of England right and that that just launched the uh, partnership between the English and the Bordelais as you as you're mentioning sure. and and that is so key to understanding why Bordeaux was really important as mm -hmm. opposed to other regions you know the people in Caor which is just you know not too far away from Bordeaux are, are always a little bit jealous because sure. the board you know the Bordelais the yeah. folks from Bordeaux really took off right? they, were, they were even taxed to disallow their product from getting out of Bordeaux because it was a major shipping right. area at that time. Yeah. Um, so th things like that all dictated how styles really, who, who ended up drinking those styles. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's not really like, ooh, this was a trend. It's more of like, literally, they were taxed and they were disallowed from getting their product right. to another place in the world. So hence right. you have this one style in Bordeaux that that worked. Right. Uh, so so if we jump ahead um, to to today, there, there, there's several different ways to, and we can bounce back and forth with history too, if, if, if you'd like, but um, today there, there's not just one way to, to make rosé, right? Can we talk about the various uh, techniques and maybe where they are, where, where you know, the, the bottles on the shelves, how you might be able to know how it's made or, or, or you know, give you some clues as to what it will taste like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see several, two common methods for producing rosé uh, today. And the first one is the saunier or the bleeding method. Um, where, and this is where rosé is actually a, a byproduct um, of the winemaking process where the, the intention of the winemaker is actually to produce a red wine, um, but they end up bleeding off some of that juice uh, during early on in the fermentation process and then taking that juice and making a rosé out of it. But usually with those styles, um, they've usually had a little bit more time with the, uh, the grape skins themselves, so we see a little bit more extraction of color. These are ten tend to be a little bit darker um, and also a little bit richer and a little bit more savory in style. Mm. Um, and then the other more common method is um, direct press or like a cold maceration um, and this is where rosé is actually made intentionally, where the grapes are grown for that purpose. Um, these styles uh, tend to be a little bit more fruity, um, a little bit lighter in color as well, because they spend a lot less time with the, the grape skins. Right. It actually might be worth us stepping one step back and talking about where color in wine actually comes from, because this is when you're mentioning this word maceration that mm -hmm. comes, uh, you know, that comes into play. But I think that a lot of folks would be surprised that um, all red wines are not red because their pulp is is red, sure. but because uh, of the skins. Chris, can you elaborate on yeah. this and, and talk about where where the color uh, actually comes from, and then that comes into the various techniques to make mm -hmm. rosé, right? So. Unless you're like a uh, tinterior grape, you have red juice in the actual grape. Most 
often the juice inside of a grape is actually white or very, very blush. Yeah. So the pigmentation or the color is coming from the skins. Yeah. And uh, much like a, a painter would extract uh, pigment to make a paint, um, you know, I like to use that metaphor when you're talking especially about rosé because you look at like, you know, the the wine fridge and there's like 40 shades of rosé. Right, right, right. And in a way that's sort of the winemaker's touch or expression of extracting that particular varietal. Yeah. Um, and I guess there are certain varietals that are more conducive to being extracted more. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, lighter varietals in southern France and Provence maybe or in Bendol. Uh, we're seeing a lot of Grenache and Sanso and Syrah. Um, and these grapes are all great at uh, manipulating color, yeah. whereas others oxidize more quickly, like uh, uh, Grenache, for instance. Yeah, okay, so so we've got, um, I love that metaphor, by the way, of the painter. It's, it's fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. I, th- I don't think I thought of that myself. <laughs> okay, so um, I actually have never read that before, but that, that's wonderful. So you, you kind of start with the type of red grape, and, and that might um, start you off on a path, whether it's going to be a you know deeper pigment rosé or, yeah. or, or a lighter style. And you mentioned um, the Provence grapes, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that's kind of one of the meccas of rosé, right? So sure. it, ma- it makes sense. What? What are the, what are those grapes and um, and do they all give kind of this this lighter style quality? I mean, they're they're stylistically all very different, and that's why they're they're permitted in certain regions. Um, Grenache, I mentioned, being more uh, varietal that oxidizes. So, oftentimes, if you see a rosé that might have an orange like hue to it, um, that can sometimes be indicative of that varietal. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole slew of other varietals, even white varietals that can be used in rosé because after all, you're just looking for the juice and that little bit of skin contact that Rania mentioned in the direct pressing, right. um, you know, that can be upwards of, you know, literally only a few seconds to, you know, upwards of a few days before you turn into something more like extended macerated or like orange wines or getting more uh, sc- coloration in the wines. Yeah. Um, well, well, um, well. Let's you, you you make. I want you to elaborate on orange wines because I think some people have heard of that. And, sure. Um, elaborate on that. What what is orange wines? And I know that a lot of listeners out there might may or may not have heard of of, of this style. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a style that uh, you know I write on the board as a special, and it's fun to talk about. It's essentially just extended skin contact. Um, right but from typically white grapes, actually. Yeah. Uh, Pinot Grigio is a great example, or Pinot Gris, because uh, the grape skin, hence the gris, the gray, has a little bit of coloration. So going back to, again, the, the, the pigmentation, just because the, the juice is white, even if the, the grape itself is slightly gray, you, you're going to yield a little bit of color over a period of a few days. So typically, once you exceed that kind of four-day maceration point, you get uh, more... Uh, tannins and structure from the grapes and color and with that it kind of goes in the more orange direction and i think that's more of a colloquial way of of describing what the wine is but in other in other countries like italy for instance you won't hear orange wine they don't really say that or or the translation of it it, yeah it's more extended skin contact which i think sounds kind of Sexy and nice. You can also say too that like orange wine are, is is essentially a white wine that's made in a in a red wine style, mm. and rosés are 
red wines that are sort of vinified in this white wine style yeah. for, for guests. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM and koop.org. We're talking with Rania Zayat and Chris Kelly of Vintel Wines. You can find more information uh, on all of the ongoings that they that they have going on at vintelwine.com. Um, and, uh, and we're talking about rosé this, uh, the first half of the show or first 20 minutes or so, um, because they have a rosé class, um, coming up at, at Lenoir. Um, a really interesting, I think that a lot of folks, when they, when they find out that this orange wine can be, you know, is, is a thing that exists, um, they might not be able to, to visualize what it tastes like. What, what does it taste like as opposed to, um, as opposed to rosés? Um, I tend to think of rosé as having, uh, well, if if it's a direct pressed rosé, sort of the more common um, method that we typically see in areas like Provence, um, those rosés tend to show a little bit more of this bright uh, or tart red fruit characteristic. Um, If there's white grapes blended in, you can pick up a lot more of that fruity characteristic up Mm -hmm. front as well. Whereas with uh, orange wines, because of that extraction from the skins, I tend to think a lot more about tea-like notes and tea-like textures. Mm. Um, when you're making tea and you, you're letting you know the tea leaves extract for a certain period of time, you start to get that sort of uh, dry, uh, tannic characteristic. Um, that, to me, is, is very uh, classic with a lot of orange wines. Um, and then also a little bit of this oxidative character. Sometimes we get um, slightly nutty tones, um, uh, floral notes as well. Um, but it really is is up to the the winemaker and and also the the grape that they're using because of that extended skin contact. You are getting a lot more of the varietal characteristic with orange wines than you are getting with rosés. Right, because it has more time mm-hmm. for the flavors of the grapes in the skins to to permeate through the wine. Totally, right. Absolutely. Can can you talk about tannin in rosé? And and we can talk. Uh, you know, we can talk about orange and uh, true rosés as well. Uh, just in the sense of. Um, you know, we not only get color from the skins, but we also get tannin. Mm-hmm. Um, describe how, how that kind of comes in uh, on rosés, and it, it probably would lead into a discussion about food pairings Absolutely. as well, right? Yeah. yeah. What do you think, so, Chris? Yeah, I mean, tannins are a, a tactile sensation. Um, it's the, you know, the, the gripping in your mouth, the drying out factor. Um, and that can be hugely uh, pivotal in a rosé, and especially in a pairing, because if you're you need a conduit to uh, a more rich dish with more protein. You know, protein and tannins are good friends. So if you have a rosé that has a little bit more extract, and again, it might not be because of the color necessarily. Um, certain grapes yield can yield more uh, tannic juice in the end run and not necessarily, uh, you know, f- be indicative of the color itself. Right. So we almost think um, of so so we almost think of that that grapes hat that have a deep color. They would also have a lot of tannin because both things are coming from the skins. But sure. you're saying it's it's not. It's independent. Right. There's just in, inherently more tannic grapes. Uh, so if the winemaker is in a particular region like Piedmont and they're using Nebbiolo to make a Nebbiolo rosé, you're going to experience you know more tannins. Right. Because Nebbiolo is a more tannic varietal than right. say Grenache. Yeah. Um, and back to the orange wine thing with, with tannin, it's like, it's, you know, we see all these wines in clear bottles and they're insinuating that they're drunk immediately and they're beautiful and blush and all these shades. And then there are rosés that are in dark bottles, which to me is more insinuating that they're drunk 
year round and it's not so much the color it's what's inside the bottle right yeah that's um, a good tip as far as the, the the color of the bottle i like that um do so do um yeah and then and then to your point you 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 said something that really reminded me of um the spectrum, the ability for rosés to be on that spectrum, and is a grape from Piedmont as well, Grignolino, mm-hmm. which although the, the Piedmont, it's, it's maybe a deeper rosé, but if you're in Piedmont, they call it a red wine. Mm-hmm. And so that that is this idea that, that there's this broad spectrum mm-hmm. of, of, of rosé, um, or even sure. just color and wine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful. I, I always think of, and another thing you said reminded me of... Um, you know, having rosé with barbecue, mm-hmm. you know, and and because of the tannin and the and and the fatness of the meat. What mm-hmm. what are your favorite pairings with with barbecue? And and I and I have a little insider information that you might be doing a uh, food and wine pairing class down later in the summer. So we'll stay tuned for that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I always go to uh, sparkling rosé. I mean, <laughs> we can't uh, admit that category too. Right, um, right. Stylistically, I mean, it depends on where you are in the world, what you what you are looking to drink, and I always encourage uh, rosé drinkers to try a different region because stylistically, you know, going back to the history, there are so many different regions uh, that express themselves uh, through rosé, um, and there are so many good examples now of quality rosés with a lot of structure that pair with something more uh, complex, not necessarily barbecue, but other things. So barbecue specifically to me has a lot of textural things. It's like, you know, going back to our show in November, it's like the texture is really important to me. And, um, you know, barbecue sauce has sweetness some spice, right? And then the protein. So a rosé is actually a really perfect pairing for that <laughs> right, right. Um, because it sa- it kind of fires on all cylinders yeah. and satiates the fruit department, the acid department, sometimes the tannin department, um, but isn't too overbearing. So it's altogether just refreshing. Yeah, right. What um do you do you do you have anything to add, Rania, on the on the on the pairing side and um yeah and 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 i and I don't want to leave the sparkling rose uh too far behind either right sure. <laughs> yeah absolutely i i mean like we agreed upon with barbecue it it tends to be a little bit um of a richer food especially in, in this hot weather um so i i tend to lean towards rosés that are um, essentially lighter brighter have a lot of more acidity and minerality so i would classically steer towards um, direct press method rosés uh, as a pairing option for those um, I, there's a lot coming out of california right now that i really enjoy um, and then also those sort of classic uh, provencal or more coastal um, styles of rosé that offer sort of this balancing effect in your palate to really clean up that you know that richness and that that fattiness that we get with barbecue as well and also something to pair with um some of the the side dishes that go along with that too um i'm a, really like coleslaw uh those types of dishes also need something uh bright yeah yeah Do, does 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 rosé come from all wine producing countries and um you know and, and then maybe we'll we'll t- tap you for some of your favorite you know favorite overall regions yeah it wouldn't surprise me if they were making rosé in antarctica yeah i mean their their rosé is literally made now just about anywhere there is a, a press um and you know via technology and the ability to 
make rosé almost any time of the year as well is really beneficial. And yeah. you see a lot of producers jumping on the bandwagon now to to produce this style because it has um, resurged in popularity, especially in the past 15, 20 years. I mean, it's sort of gone through these waves, right? We saw the, the Matusse and the Sutter Home um, wave of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then uh, Rosé really sort of died out for a little while, and then now um, come, you know, 2000s in the past 10, 15 years, um, everyone and their mom wants to drink Rosé, right, right, literally. Right. Yeah. Um, and so producers are taking advantage of that um, market share and really producing rosés that have never done it before. So you see, so you do see this resurgence that people are saying, I want to get in on this, I want to make a rosé, maybe not necessarily because that's where my passion is, but because that's what the market is demanding. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they're smart to do so. I mean, we're even seeing rosés on, you know, entire programs um, in restaurants um, all around the country. Uh, that have entire sections devoted to rosé, whereas that right. that wasn't a thing, you know, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago. Right. Amazing. A serious wine person wouldn't drink rosé or have it on their list or in their and retail shop. Maybe it was f- <clears throat> formally considered inexpensive, too. And it definitely could be or should be just like a lot of other wines. But right. we start to see more of a mid-price point for rosés, and that is all of a sudden more acceptable. Yeah. And people don't bat an eye at uh, you know that mid-price point, uh, a rosé on a on a on a wine list or a retail. Yeah, and and so so they they might be using more uh, premium winemaking techniques to, sure. to to be making this, yeah. and then that will be reflected They're in the price. Intentionally using those grapes to make specifically just a rosé, right? Versus doing saunier or you know making a a secondary wine as well, right. more concentrated red or something. Yeah. Guys, we should take a short break. Uh, I'm talking here with Rania Zayat and Chris Kelly of Vintel Wines. You can find more information on them at vintelwine.com. And my name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And uh, we'll be right back after these messages. We're back. My name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down. And today we're talking with uh, local Austin sommeliers, Chris Kelly and Rania Zayat. They um, are, have been doing a series of classes through their Vintel Wine uh, consulting company. They do label design as well. Um, more information on them, vintelwine.com. Uh, we, we're wrapping up this conversation on rosé, but I, I think that we, we've left kind of a big topic uh, out, and that is the sweetness level. And, and uh, Rania, in the, before the break, you had mentioned that um, you know this sweeter Sutter Home white Zinfandel style, uh, and nowadays we might be, refer to that as blush, uh, really saved saved the style, but but it wasn't as serious. And then uh, now we're mostly talking about dry rosés on the shelf. Uh, how is that? The sweetness level is totally independent of all of these other components, color and tannin. Um, absolutely. I mean, any any wine can be vinified, sweet uh, or dry, up to the winemaker's uh, choice. But I think what's interesting about producers like Sutter Home and these wines like Matus, you know, the cheap exported Portuguese rosé of the 60s and 70s is that um, that style of rosé is really still solidified in, in people's minds to this day. And um, every time there's a conversation about uh, choosing a rosé on a, on a restaurant list or at a retail store, people um, still you know, ha- feel like they have to express the fact that they want a dry rosé or, you know, of all these rosés, which ones are dry. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of this this negative perception that rosé is still uh, always made in this sweet style or most often made in a sweet style. Right. Um, 
Do you when so both of you have a lot of experience in restaurants? Do you do you find that these days uh, people are uh, really specifying? Okay, I want rosé, but I want to make sure that it's dry. Or uh, you know, d- does the conversation have to go one step further because it's a pretty ambiguous category? Yeah, I mean, what I love about that conversation and that question is that it allows us to talk about the fact that rosé is not just a color of wine and that it's an entire category with many different styles uh, that are produced. So it's not just about finding a dry option, but it's about finding um, the right rosé for that person or for that dish that they're going to be enjoying. Um, and so seeing the the spectrum from these really light, bright, mineral-driven styles to these uh, sort of slightly richer um more textural and, and fuller bodied styles of rosé and, and really showing people that there is a whole world of, of styles out there and it's not just a, a color of wine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, I really like your dis- uh, description of the different styles, this sagné style, which is a bleeding off of the juice. And then we have the direct press where the where the red grapes are made almost essentially like, um, like white wines. Uh, when we move the conversation to champagne and the sparkling wines, um, is do does that fit into to one of those categories? Um, champagne can fit into the Sagne category, absolutely. But um, what's really interesting about Champagne is that it's the only region um, in France that legally allows the blending of red and white juice together to create a rosé. Yeah. Um, otherwise, that's outlawed in, in France. I, I think that that would surprise most listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really interesting because maybe uh, sometimes people might think that that is how rosé is produced generally. Right. Um, right. And, to, and to hear that that's really frowned mm-hmm. upon uh, typically for a lot of... Uh, regions so why is it why is it so it's frowned upon in most regions why is it uh, almost acceptable in champagne hmm. Hmm. um i think they're at a disadvantage climatic disadvantage right, right? right. Um, but i mean there are other cool climate regions too like the loire valley for instance and there's plenty of cremants there that are rosé as well right um and usually to me that's uh, uh, not to discount champagne, but in terms of talking mid-price point, I mean, that sometimes is obsolete for people, right? So the Loire Valley is a great place to find Cremant Rosé, right. um, you know, where you're going to see expression from uh, specific grapes there, like Cabernet Franc or Groslot or Gamay that are really, really true to their character and that still express themselves through sparkling wines, which yeah. is great. I mean, that's what I want personally is to have a sparkling wine where you can actually taste what the grape is in it. Right, you don't. That's really special. Right, you don't want just to have bubbles for bubbles' sake. Right. You, you want this bubble to be particular. Yeah. And, you, know. you know, back to a barbecue pairing. I mean, I can't think of a, a better barbecue pairing other than beer, perhaps, than a sparkling rosé, like a dry sparkling cremant. Yeah. From the Loire Valley, for instance. Yeah. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm getting hungry and I'm getting ready to, <laughs> to have uh, to, to get um, summer barbecue season. Um, hopefully, I'm sorry, co-op listeners, that we didn't do a, a, um, a brisket this year for the pickup party. I promise <laughs> the next uh, the next membership drive pickup party, we will we'll do a uh, smoke a brisket uh, and have some uh, Cremant Rosé. That sounds delightful. <laughs> uh, let's transition into a another topic that you guys are very interested in, um, or at, at least it seems that you're very interested in, is uh, transparency in wine. What does what does that mean? Uh, you know, broad brushstrokes, and then we'll get a little bit more specific. Yeah. So it, we had to title kind of all of our thoughts collectively into uh, a kind of a thesis, and transparency kept on coming up. 
and that was a word that we kept on using to describe uh, what we like to see more of in the wine world. Um, and in a, in a nutshell, we as consumers don't actually know what is in our wine, uh, save uh, sulfates, right? Because yeah. in 1986, there was a lawsuit over uh, someone who had a fatal incident with being actually being allergic to sulfites, and um, that became uh, instilled on the label, and now we still see that uh, 32 years later, yet there aren't any other ingredients. Um, so our whole thesis was just kind of getting people aware of what they're consuming, um, because right. call it a trend or not, um, I think we're 30 years behind behind the food industry um, in terms of what we're putting into our bodies in liquid form. Yeah, you know, we're buying organic shampoo for our dogs, and we're buying sometimes really terrible wine. Yeah, um, so we're trying to make people aware of that in. Uh, the least political way as possible, but discussing kind of the the factors that that motivate us in buying these wines and, and getting behind them. Yeah, can, can um, so we'll talk about maybe some of the the reasons that is that that that's the case. But uh, can we talk about some of the the things that are in wine that might surprise uh, many many listeners out there? May, maybe start from a, a vineyard standpoint, or um, or wherever you guys want to start. Yeah, I mean, we can start in the vineyard for sure. It's um, a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's in talking about being in the vineyard, I mean, wine and wine grapes are an agricultural product, just like uh, anything else that we're consuming. Um, so starting there, you are thinking about um, what is the vineyard manager doing to ensure that their grapes um, are fully ripened, that they're unharmed by um, you know, pests and um, vine diseases. And so there tends to be a lot of in a conventional farming um, sense, there tends to be a lot of spraying with er chemicals and herbicides, pesticides, uh, these types of things um, that really, in the long run, have an effect on not just on the grapes themselves and, and us consuming them, but overall on the soil and the life of the soil and the things that um, should be living in that in the soil as well. And, um, with getting away from that, we're trying to create or support producers that are creating, a, you know, a biodiversity uh, in their vineyards where the soils are healthy. There are other things that are able to live uh, there as well because they're not being sprayed um, constantly, you know, right. throughout the years. Right. Killing, often killing the pests will also kill the, the, the good uh, microorganisms as well that will create the, that biodiversity. Right. And, and then so your vines become so dependent upon those chemicals that they're not able to protect themselves uh, in the future. Right, right. And also they might, if you strip the soils from organic matter, you might have to add inorganic nitrogen hmm. of course. Um, as, as a form of energy yeah. for it's the vines. Perpetual cycle. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to rid of those chemicals even when you want to, hence why certain certification bodies you know, suggest you practice this number of years, like you know, three to five years if you're getting cert, cert organic, or through EcoCert or even through USDA, right. um, or biodynamic is more extensive, like seven years. It's yeah. because it takes a very extended period of time to really work the vineyard and, and rid of those chemicals, uh, you know, had they existed. Right. Um, what and and when you so we we want to also talk about then. Um, 
you know, these, there's a big, big difference between wines made from organically grown grapes as to as what we're talking about here, and then mm. organic wine, right? Sure. Um, so we have the, the chemicals in the vineyard that if a vineyard is organic, it can be wine made from organically grown grapes. And then what happens in the vineyard, uh, I'm sorry, in the winery, um, as we, we, we talk about transparency in wine? Sure. So you talked about sulfites, right? So, so sulfites are kind of the big one. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of hollow blue over that and whether or not it gives you a headache or um, a lot of, you know, colloquial terms called, you know, natural wine or something like that, or uh, I like to say minimalist intervention or indigenous ferment, whatever your term is, um, it all often comes down to the amount of sulfites added. And the winemaker has the choice of adding a certain amount in uh, the fermentation process right after the grapes are off the uh, conveyor and pressed, right? or hopefully not off the conveyor by hand, right? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, there's, for instance, if you're a certified organic um, or growing all of your grapes organic, you legally in the U.S. Uh, are not allowed to add sulfur, which is kind of an interesting fact. Um, and, you know, naturally uh, fermented grape juice yields about 10 parts per million, which is extremely low. Right. Um, but there's a lot of uh, hang up over how much sulfur is detectable, how much is fashionable in this sort of circle of, of natural winemakers. And kind of the general consensus is around 100 parts per million. So who's counting, right? Yeah, right. That's the thing. But that's the one that everyone's hung up on. But the other um, really big one for me are uh, yeasts, because we talk about fermentation, like how does something ferment? Well, it requires yeasts. Yeah. Um, and I like to support winemakers that utilize uh, native yeast. It's actually very difficult to do, uh, to ferment something with native yeast, um, because native yeasts like to die off very quickly. Right. And they don't colonize and they don't uh, perpetually turn the wine into what we think of as a beautiful dry wine with you know 12 to 14 percent alcohol right usually stops at six to seven percent so that's why we see these longer fermentations with native yeasts um which is really dangerous because if you have a really long fermentation you're risking uh, uh the bad bugs getting mm -hmm. in there and actually right. having spoilage right. which which we don't mm -hmm. want right mm -hmm. and, and that yeah, should be a yeah it's a, it's a fine it's a fine balance um to, to me, I guess it's more of a, an art form. If you can do it well, then you're succinct with a lot of other types of art in, in the world. And you're, you're not necessarily doing it because it's more difficult, but you're doing it because of a set of, of principles. And um, ultimately, it, it yields a different flavor. It totally. Takes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, let, so, so as far as bringing that, you know, just talking about kind of these native ferments, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the reasons that winemakers do it is for consistency and also to uh, maybe avoid any um, irregularities. Irregularities. And also when you have uh, some irregularities, you do have a little, you know, spoilage is, is, is a spectrum as well. You can have yeah. like absolutely no spoilage or you can have a little bit. And so they want to avoid all of that. And we, we kind of term that in terms of acetic acid and mm -hmm. uh, some of those off flavors. But, um, you know, how, why would people... You know, Rania, what what is what is when you taste a wine that is natural ferment? Um, what what are you attracted by? by? Um, I'm attracted, honestly, by the fact that it, it's not consistent from year to year. Um, I like seeing 
um, how a winemaker is able to cope with uh, a different vintage, with the characteristics of a different vintage. And I think more than anything, that is that provides um, a, a way for them to showcase their skills as a winemaker, um, to take uh, a vintage that is unique from the, the year before, two years before, and um, really utilize that to still make something that's really beautiful. And it might not taste um, exactly the same as last year, but I mean, every year is not the same right. as the year before. And, and that's it's an agricultural it's, product. Th- that's part yeah. of the fun of, of wine, yeah, is, mm-hmm. is just getting to see the differences. Um, you know, I I don't like to drink the same thing all the time. I mean, some people certainly do. I worked at a coffee shop before where you'd have the people that come in every day of the year and drink the exact same beverage. Right. Um, I like to switch it up. Um, and that includes with what I feel like drinking on a regular basis. And so um, that's, that's the fun about working with, you get more interesting flavors as well with um, native yeast. Uh, yeah. They don't all taste the same. Um, and I think that they can create far more complex flavors and more interesting flavors than you can get with cultured yeast where you know exactly what to expect. Yeah, I mean, that's always something that when uh, that I, I like to impress on folks that when you taste a lot of different wines and, and you know, you want these unique experiences, it might not be the most, um, you know, rounded or, or, or plush fruit, but when you taste a hundred of those uh, in, in a month, you know, you, 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 you probably want something different. And, and that's the beauty of the world of wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What um what else? So we, we talked about sulfites, and um and then we talked about uh you know native ferments. Mm-hmm. What 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 other things are um are are going on in, with with wine transparency? The, the the ones that aside from you know the other preservatives are um, the various reacidification process. Processes uh, <laughs> that you can undergo. Um, there's, there's a if you're if you're interested. There's a list of about sixty three as of a few days ago on uh, the uh, FDA's website um, of permitted additives in uh, fermented uh, grape juice and, and cider. Um, it's really fascinating, and you can kind of research each one of those, and you're like, oh, what is that? And Oftentimes, it's the what is that ones that I'm the most interested right, in. Right, yeah. Um, that, that some people, that it's allowed to put that in, and I've never heard of it. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously not a chemist. I'm just a, you know, stupid wine person. But um, there's a multitude of preservatives that are, are bothersome to me. Um, but the ones that are the most uh, difficult to trace are the ones that are added in the vineyard. And those are the ones that are scary to me, and that's why I think it's really important to pay attention and to endorse uh, producers that are cognizant of that. Yeah, so so from then a consumer point of view, since you can't see it on the label, right? Uh, you have to, how, how do you really know? And, and that's yeah. a challenge for a lot of producers. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. for a lot of consumers. It's a, it's a huge challenge, and um, oftentimes things are just genrefied as organic or biodynamic, and you know, there are still certain things that organic producers can do that might not be succinct to, say, a minimalist wine producer. Yeah. Um, but in terms of overall um, health and being succinct to uh, food culture, which some people might be very critical of too, um, at least they have some transparency and you could say, oh, what is this uh, preservative on the back? Oh, okay, well, I'm not going to have that or I'm not going to have this amount of sugar. Or you have more of a choice. Um, there's more direction, of course. Um, right. 
So the the reciprocal of that is we're not necessarily suggesting that every wine have have a list of ingredients, but um, you know who is responsible for it. That's kind of our our thesis. Is it the winemaker? Is it the importer? Is it the wine buyer? Right. Or is it the consumer? And I'd argue it's the farther down the chain you go, it should come from the winemaker. It should come from the importer. There should be transparency about uh, what's put in the vineyard every single year. Was it a bad year? Did we have to use copper sulfites, or you know, did we have to use uh, something to protect against mildew or whatever? Right. Um, or you know, what, just more transparency, please. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and from the from the top through through the importer, because there's also some importers who who you know uh, uh, use this philosophy and mm-hmm. and uh, only want to be working with. Uh, some producers that are so so if you see some of those um, importers that I always am a big fan of kind of knowing the importer as well yeah. uh, sure. and 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 some importers would would uh, be able to trace that and they have a little bit of a closer hand to select producers who are of mm-hmm. a like mind Absolutely. yeah and something yeah. Um, as well with transparency is we see a lot, especially here in Austin, but, uh, you know, this talk about which wines are vegan, um, and that's becoming more of a topic. And, and for some people, they, you know, think about, well, why on earth would this wine not be vegan? What do you, what does that mean? <laughs> right. uh, what animal products are in my wine? And that relates to the finding agents. Um, and people aren't aware of that. A lot of the times uh, it's things like egg whites and, and fish bladders that are being used to, to find those wines before they're being bottled, uh, which is definitely more of a conventional thing. We see with a lot more um, minimal intervention wines that a lot of those aren't fined or filtered before bottling. Um, but that is definitely a, a category um, that that people are, are starting to ask about. And there's even been there are even some certifications where people are starting to put little vegan logos um, yeah. on their bottles as well. Yeah, it's so, incredible I'm that surprised. they don't have to that they don't have to uh, recognize that they're using these fining agents. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, wonderful, guys. Let's take a, another short break and uh, and then be back with uh, the Wonder Woman of Wine, which is also a, a really um, a big interest of yours and uh, also where you're going. So if you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Krayshup. This is Another Bottle Down. We're speaking here this hour with Rania Zayat and Chris Kelly of Vintel Wine. Uh, a, a, a number of more uh, in-depth descriptions on their website, vintelwine.com. All right, let's take a short break and be right back with Chris and Rania. All right, 145 in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Co-op Radio. You can find uh, more information on the Blood Drive and all all of our co-op events at koop.org. You can also find an archive to this show uh, at coop.org slash another bottle down and, uh, and and click on the link and there's a um, if you're interested in this in this uh, general topic of transparency in wine and want to hear the auditory explanations as well through interviews I've done uh, I've had a number of natural winemakers and uh, organic wine producers and biodynamic producers uh, on this show um, I did. I, I, I kind of numbered all of my uh, my episodes, uh, not including reruns, and and we're right at about 130 or so. So um, uh, there's been a lot of talk, and, and of course, I like to um, hear the stories of, of and the tri- and the trials and tribulations of the natural winemakers and and whatnot. So uh, most recently, Chad Stock, who is from Minimus uh, and Origin, uh, uh, has very very uh, stalwart opinions on. Sure. Uh, 
natural wine and, and native fermentations and all of that that we were talking about. So check that out on the co-op website. Um, well, this is wonderful. Chris Kelly and Rania Zayat uh, from Vintel Wine. Um, having they have their rosé uh, class coming up tomorrow uh, at Lenoir, and um, and so you know, Rania, you you kind of took the lead on this uh, Wonder Women of Wine uh, study and and class that you did um, maybe a couple months ago, right? Um, what, um, what what was what was this all about? Um, so I chose that topic because uh, obviously I'm a woman in the wine industry. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know this is one of the oldest industries in the in the world. Um, yet it is still uh, dominated by men in many ways, um, and has been for quite some time. And I feel like we are starting to see uh, more female winemakers come to the forefront, um, even you know whose families have been producing wine for 12, 13 generations, and for the first time um, there there is a woman at the at the helm of that that's leading it and. My motivation for doing this class was to really bring uh, more female role, role models uh, to the forefront, not just for women, um, but for anyone in the wine industry uh, to look at and say, wow, these, these women are great, not just because they're making wine, but because they're doing something extraordinary in their region uh, with their grape varietals, with um, winemaking in general. And so I chose to focus on that class a couple months ago uh, on t 10 different producers. Wow. Um, but as I was doing research, um, I discovered many, many more, of course. Um, and so the list just goes on and on. Right. Do you, do you have um, any, is it, was there any, you know, one place to find an, an interesting, uh, you know, conglomeration of, of, you know, all of these accomplishments and, uh, um, might be a suggestion for, for the website. <laughs> uh, as far as, as one Just, place to find the information? Yeah, or? well, in, in terms of any, any place that had highlighted this in a, in a pretty comprehensive way, this topic? Uh, you know, it, I really didn't find, like, one source. I mean, of course, people have written, written on the topic before. Right. Um, but I really tried to find the information through winemakers that I've met personally uh, or whose wines I've worked with and who, I, who I've always... Um, admired in some regard and then as I was figuring that out of course there were there were some posts but um, I discovered so many winemakers that um, you know for instance on Perrant in, in Burgundy who's come to the market uh, before and just how she is the first um, of 12 generations in her family to produce wine and yeah. um, she started an organization in Burgundy um, called La Femme de Vigne de Bourgogne where she's focusing on highlighting um, female winemakers that you know, has started 15 years ago and she started with about eight producers and now that organization has grown up to 50 and is all around the country. It's um, awesome. So there's there's a lot to top, talk about with the topic, um, yeah. but it's something that I'm excited to continue. Yeah, did, continue did you find with. any regions that were maybe more rich in uh, a female winemaker culture or um, what kind of came out that any trends that you saw? I, I should say that there's a lot of studies that have been published that women are better wine tasters. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that there's, that, that there's it, it should be natural for the profession of winemaking and, um, and it is still such a dominated uh, male culture culture. Um, Karen McNeil, who wrote the Wine Bible, has spoken and written quite substantially on this topic in the past several months. And it's it's just amazing the the trials and tribulations, the hardships that she had making it in, in this world. What, what were the trends that you saw? Um, so I did notice that a lot of uh, Spanish 
Spanish, the leading Spanish producers are actually uh, led by by female winemakers from uh, Lopez de Heredia to Vega Cecilia to Martin Kodaks and um, all of these these giant, you know, Spanish houses that have a lot of uh, rich history um, have women at the forefront, which was fascinating to me because I didn't actually know that. But it's a, that's new to me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really cool to find out. But I did try and focus on finding women um, from all over the world. Um, yeah. And what I also noticed was that a lot of women, you know, it's not that we're just now getting involved um, in winemaking and in this industry. It's that a lot of it was not included in the history books. And so right. you look at Champagne, for instance, and you see a lot of these really great widows that were leading their houses um, after their husbands passed and, and not only just leading them, but taking them to new heights right. and really promoting them um, in the greater role of wine and really solidifying their place in history uh, for, for Can, can you talk about that? Because I find the role of women in Champagne is super fascinating and just awesome because, you know, they really were all the benchmarks of, you know, of, of almost the, the innovation in... Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the ones that's most common, I think, people are most familiar with is, is Madame Cliquot of, of Veuve Cliquot, uh, Veuve just meaning widow. Um, but really, uh, her husband passed away pretty early on um, after the, the winery was founded. Um, but she is actually revolutionary for introducing the, the pupitre or the A-rack system, which is pivotal um, to the champagne making process. Yeah. Um, and now has even been created um, and replicated in more of a, a modern format by the Spanish with the, the Giro palette. But uh, it's that system that really is responsible for, for making champagne what it is today. Yeah, right. And and the, the Madame Pomery as well uh, for, for the dry style of the champagne. dry style of champagne. Yeah. We we wouldn't with if it were not for the Madame Pomery we would be drinking from Pomery we would be drinking a sweeter style and yeah. uh, <laughs> no one wants that right <laughs> right right right. There, there's an interesting book. Did you come across this book? Uh, I'm I'm not sure of the exact name, but it's I think um, the Great Women of Wine or so where it outlines um, I think really like in depth stories long form of uh, three of the, the, the icon women of wine. Um, maybe I'm getting the, the name of the book wrong. I, I do recall seeing that. I, I don't own it personally, but I, I did see it, and I think I did uh, scan it for some, for some good tidbits. Right. I, when I was just in Portugal, there was, there was a lot of talk about Dona Ferreira from mm -hmm. the porthouse, Ferreira, that was she was beloved by the entire port region, and she, she just created many of the, the innovations of, of that time. Um, can, can you just give us a, a few, throw out a few of those, uh, those women winemakers that, that, you, that you were kind of super excited to, uh, to feature? Yeah, um, I featured Susanna Balbo um, from Mendoza. She was the first uh, female to graduate uh, with an enology degree in Argentina, but also graduated the top of her class. Um, I featured Anne Perrance, uh, Ariana Okipinti, yeah. Uh, Elisabetta Foradori up in um, the Dolomiti region, northern Italy, um, Valentina Pasalacqua, um, so many. Who else did I feature? Uh, uh, Noella Morantan from the Loire Valley, love her Ariana wines. Ariana Ocapinti. Yep. Um, did you say that already? Yeah. See, I can there always... Was, <laughs> I mean, but the list, honestly... Elisabetta? Uh, yep. Okay. 
keeps on. just keeps going on yeah. and on. Well, more fodder for future classes, right? Uh, yeah. To 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 keep on to keep on that theme. How did you find that uh, that that the public really received it? And and can you tell the touch of a female winemaker? Um, uh, is is there some somewhat of a mark that that might be? It's okay if there's not, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I would I would say that there's not um, a mark for me. I like to think uh, I don't I try to not describe wines in a feminine versus masculine uh, terminology anymore and I feel like um, the wines are they, they they are what they are right they're they're great um, in the right hands but uh, I felt like the class was really well received there were um, a lot of women attending it of course um, but the idea is is to make it some a topic that is open for uh, for anyone that's interested in, in not just targeting a, a female audience sure. I feel like it's important for us to all benefit from um, accepting this movement and also solidifying uh, women in the greater world of wine and not separating it in the future. Right, right, right. Not to say uh, great women winemakers, but to say great winemakers. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that that's uh, yeah, just like in anything else. Yeah. Right. Right. And an important time to be talking about this, and um, and and to be talking about um, you know all all of the the preconceived notions that that uh, make it even tougher to be uh, on the top of the winemaking game, and and to, and to have that conversation is really important. So um, keep up uh, keep up the amazing work on that. We have just a few minutes. Left, and um, I'd like to kind of talk about what um, you know, what what uh, drives you to create these themes, and what are you studying now that's uh, that's of interest that we might see down the road, and um, and your process to because there, there's these classes seem to be very very kind of complex with a lot of facets to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mean it's, it's driven from me personally from restaurant experience and what guests are asking for, and maybe the experience that they're looking for. Um, and being able to create something that is a, a conduit to that um, is is a g- great motivation to uh, to studying and preparing for these classes. Yeah. Uh, trying trying not to let you know personal tastes and politics get in the way. It's very difficult because you know there's a lot of styles of wine that obviously I you know had a had a rant a little bit ago about that, but. Um, you know, to, to give people uh, accurate information, and that is also what transparency is about. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that is a... Uh, you bring up a really interesting point because the the industry and folks who are you know talking wine, hundred uh, percent of their working day, can almost seem uh, you know to be distanced and to not be in connection with the public, right? Do you find and and that's a hard thing. We want to be connected to the public and what they're actually interested in. Do you find that to be a challenge, right? Yeah, and and maybe directing the public, you know, if, because I feel like you know sometimes the the crowd is the untruth, and you know we need to uh, say this is really a style, and this is why this wine was made in a really cold year, and let's recognize these things in these unique qualities. Right. That's that's that in it of itself is a truth um, that I think we can help the the public get better from, uh, familiarized with. Yeah. Rania, any uh, so guys, we're 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 just about out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. for being on the show. Any final thoughts um, uh, for folks wanting more information? Vintelwine dot com, and um, yeah, what what's the next? Uh, so we talked about food pairing. The next uh, thing on the docket. 
food and wine pairing? Yeah, yeah. food and wine pairing will be in in June. Um, So class on that uh, posted shortly. Okay. Thank you guys so much for coming into the studio. Uh, This has been Another Bottle Down. My name is Mark Rayshop, talking with Rania Zayed and Chris Kelly of Vintel. Stay tuned for the People's Republic of uh, Austin with Brian, and we'll see you next week, folks.